Hi, uh, welcome to the New Voting Project. Uh, my name is Kunal, your host. And today we have a very special guest, Vikram Iyer, uh, who is a former member of the Obama administration, currently works at you know National uh, ACLU. He's just a pretty cool guy, so I figured why don't we bring him on so he can talk about his coolness and maybe it just spreads. Uh, but, but thank you so much for, for coming on the show, Vikram. You are very busy. This has been a long time coming, uh, but I do appreciate your time. I appreciate your time too, and for calling me cool. I think only my mom thinks I'm cool, so I will take it. Appreciate it. Shout out to your mom. She's a nice uh, lady too. Shout out to my mom. Yeah. All right. So let's get into these questions. Uh, just for our viewers, talk in in relative detail about your work at the Obama administration. You were also vice president of public policy at Postmates, um, and your current role uh, at the ACLU. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me. I, I had, I've had experiences in the public sector and the private sector, and now with the ACLU in, in civil society, really addressing some of our social justice and racial justice inequities. And those are kind of, some people might view that as three different categories, unrelated categories of work. But I think in this moment in history, when a lot of people are looking at inequities that were exposed or amplified during COVID, that we need to recognize that the government, private industry and businesses creating jobs and social justice advocates are all kind of playing vital roles right now to make sure that we're creating an equitable economic recovery when we think about coming out of the other side of COVID. So for me, my work started, um, you know, I grew up here in the Bay Area in Fremont, um, went to the illustrious Mission San Jose High School. Yeah, uh, about that. <laughs> and after uh, I went to college at Berkeley and I got a political itch and I moved to D.C., had an opportunity to work for a member of Congress, former Senator or former Congressman, now Senator Ed Markey, um, for a former mayor in D.C., for Adrian Fenty, and uh, worked in the Obama administration, had an opportunity to be a speechwriter for an undersecretary of commerce. It's a fancy term for a senior member of his cabinet, um, had the opportunity to work on economic policy as it related to startup growth and small business growth. Around this time, 08, 09, 10, 11, we were really trying to get the gears of the economy going again because we had just been smacked with a pretty bad recession. Um, home ownership was plummeting because of inopportune loans that were handed out. The big auto manufacturers, car manufacturers in this country were reeling and needed government assistance. So my role and the teams that I work with were asking a simple question of how do we invest in the policies um, and make the investments in new sectors that might kickstart economic growth in this country again. Um, it was an incredible experience to work for this president, even a more incredible experience um, to take my parents to, you know, White House Christmas party. Oh, um, damn, yeah. I, I wanna go to a White House Christmas party. Yeah, 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 yeah. When your parents are nervous that you're not a lawyer, if you take them to meet Barack and Michelle at a Christmas party, it ends all the criticism of no longer being a lawyer. Yeah. Um, but in 2017, the administration changed, as we know. And when President Trump transitioned in, I sort of wondered yeah. how I could act. Oh, go ahead. No, you were you were part of the diaspora that left the White House at when Trump when the Trump administration was installed. Right? That's right. That's yeah. right. And for for those of you um, who are interested or maybe unfamiliar, anytime the president comes into office, a president, they get to appoint their own staff in a lot of different roles and agencies you know, in the White House, in embassy posts around the country, and that entire crop of political appointees, they're called, 
has to tender their resignation when the next president comes in. And so I was asked, as you said, Kunal, um, I was asking myself, what's next? And having worked on the policies to invest in the economy and what we thought from the perch of government was good for growth and good for business, I also kind of thought it must be a totally different experience to be in a business and butt up against those policies and regulations. And if you really want to try and make sure that we can create jobs and we can create good quality jobs and that we can sort of win the future, that we can make the investments in new areas that our competitors around the country, like China or Russia or other places are making in new sectors like artificial intelligence or new technologies, then it would be prudent for me to actually exit the public sector and maybe pivot into the private sector and learn what it looks like to build it from the ground up. So I, I moved back to the Bay Area uh, in San Francisco, where I'm at uh, today, and I joined the tech company. It was then a startup, much smaller, um, called Postmates. Some of you may be familiar. Some of you, like me, might be victim to it and order Taco Bell a little too late in the night. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, a food delivery app might seem like a random pivot from um, you know going from Barack Obama to burrito delivery. But it, <laughs> it, it is a um, it's an interesting experience because being able to see what it's like and what it takes to help build a company, um, it, it's fascinating to figure out how you marshal private capital to invent new jobs, new creation. Um, but it also had a lot of significant policy headwinds. And we were begging this question about what does the future of work really look like if you can download an app? And start working right away, driving for Uber, sharing your home on Airbnb, riding your bike and making deliveries for Postmates. And it, it created this tension in this national conversation about labor law. You know, labor law maybe didn't necessarily contemplate the internet and how people work seamlessly through the internet now. I mean, even you and I are having this conversation via Zoom, which is a shift from even just two years ago. And so we had a big conversation with the governor of, of California and governors in other states and labor unions about how do we protect this form of work, uh, the ability for someone who used to be in jail and may not be able to find work in another way, but is able to quickly download an app and start making money again. So protect that form of work, but also increase worker power, increase the ability to make sure that workers are paid well, treated well, and they have some voice in the process. And so that was an incredible experience at Postmates. Um, ultimately, though, the company was sold, and that brought me to ACLU. I think like many people in the last year, 2020, uh, I was witnessing a lot of attacks on voting rights, uh, witnessing a lot of attacks on transgender rights, the very Trumpian appointed Supreme Court I knew would be a big threat for reproductive rights in this country. And so I felt that, you know, if, if Obama years were spent on working on investing in an economy to come back, and the private sector time at Postmates was spent in how do you build jobs for a company from the ground up and how do you make them better and apply regulations to it. Then I started to think that, well, that if that economy doesn't work, if there's structural barriers to be heard or to show up or that you get attacked for just the own color of your skin or you get discriminated against for identifying with a certain orientation, then we got to address those structural inequities at the ground level, fundamental level. And that's the work of the ACLU. And now I'm a deputy director over there where I get to oversee economic work as well as gender justice work. And so it's been a hell of a ride, but a fascinating one nonetheless. Yeah, I have no doubts about that. Um, and you went to Berkeley. Uh, it's the only oh, other it but Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I guess where do you see your original career started, right? 
as you 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 had the political itch as you said mm-hmm. and where and you you found a way to intersect that with with technology at an early stage and I just want to ask why why you made that transition, right? You could have stayed in DC, you could have go worked for another congressman or a senator, but you decided to flow to technology, come back, obviously work in Silicon Valley. Why make that transition? I think, you know, two reasons. First, I did feel that I'm broadly motivated by public service. Uh, you know, you don't have to um, have the name senator by your name in order to be a public servant. You can be a teacher, you can be a community organizer, you can do what you're doing and hosting conversations that are important. Um, yeah. But I also thought that if we're going to talk about an economy, and you know, so much of my early days in DC was informed by the economy turning down, and a lot of friends of mine that were um, going through law school for, at the moment in time, or were trying to figure out what their work was going to be at a moment in time, they found themselves jobless on some level. And even when we were trying to invest in new types of jobs or make jobs even better, better quality jobs, um, this sense of being able to work hard and earn a, a living for yourself and then invest that into your family. That basic social compact is so core to how we think about America. And yet it's one thing to try and sit from the perch of government or from a congressional office or from a White House office and talk about that and think about that. And it's important. Those government leaders from the executive branch make a difference of how our economy functions. But it's also important that if you're going to regulate it, if you're really going to credibly opine that if we expand the safety net to offer more tax credits for families, or if we were to expand the safety net to make sure that there was more money for job training, for new types of technologies out there, that you really understand what it's like to actually be on the business side of that operation and see what it takes to create these jobs. And I thought I always wanted to come back into public service of some capacity, but I thought for two chess moves or two or three chess moves down the road, it would be important to switch over to the private sector. And then the last thing I'll say on this, the sort of second reason was Technology is clearly um, seeping in or has seeped into every corner of our lives. The digitization of everything Mm. creates vast opportunities. It can also create vast inequities. On the one hand, you know, a company like Postmates, if you or I are customers, just looks like a delivery app. On the other hand, if you're working, either because you're a grocery store worker um, or a corner store uh, restaurant that needs to sell during a pandemic, you rely on apps like this. Exactly. And, and keep their margins tight, right? Absolutely. And then couriers rely on apps like this when they're out of work or they need to supplement income. So we have to ask ourselves that as all the new technologies come on, come online, not just Postmates, um, the Facebooks of the world, the home sharing opportunities, the driverless car opportunities, the, the use of artificial intelligence to monitor the levels of lead in water in places like Flint, Michigan, whose water sources and supplies have been impacted over the years. All of those technologies prevent, uh, provide incredible opportunities, but you also have to ask this question, is our system of laws ready to embrace this new technology? Does it look up for workers and storefront owners and people and communities and safety and racial biases? And this totality of circumstances is being begged this question for how do we balance the tech and celebrate it and allow us to compete with other com- uh, other countries while also making sure that we have responsible regulations that govern it safely and equitably for people that touch it. And I think that was part of the reason that I wanted to go to a tech company too. In any case, you had mentioned at the ACLU now, let's talk about that because I feel working for the ACLU is quite an honorable yet grueling task because you face a lot of um, shit. <laughs> That's the best way I can explain it. 
let's let's roll back to 2020, right? Let's talk about the 2020 election. We had a, a once in a century pandemic, uh, a top to bottom, you know, national election. You know, I was working in it at, at one point as a volunteer. Um, so obviously it was, it was very pressing. Um, and we see this clash of two, you know, parties, hyperpolarization. What are your thoughts on the year 2020? Um, and, and kind of walk me through what what you did and how you recovered from that year, or if you are recovered from that year. That's a great question. I mean, I, at first, I think 2020 was the year of the essential worker. And our version of defining essential was really grounded in work. What did work look like? You know, um, I was very blessed and privileged, frankly, to have a job that got really intense during COVID because we were a delivery app and there was a lot more delivery happening as people stayed at home. But I could work from this screen right here. And that meant that my work was playing a role in the pandemic. But then you think about the type of work like the janitor, the grocery store owner or operator or clerk, the restaurant chef in the back that's you know making food on behalf of families that are trying to request delivery. Um, a, a whole tonnage of work in this country that isn't often celebrated or regarded, both in terms of level of pay or in terms of kind of quote unquote social standing and stature was flipped on its head and demanded as vital to just things and systems working. You know, the ability for um, our tables to be wiped down and cleaned in accordance to CDC guidelines, our ability for, you know, certain basic scaled back, but basic transportation infrastructure systems to operate or not operate, the, the basic ability for people to go into a grocery store, all of these dynamics that we kind of think as secondary jobs or not high skilled jobs became essential and critical and those workers really were big heroes and I think what it also shined the light on was the inequities of that work right when you saw record booming profits for companies that have the ability to still do their work but all stay at home reducing their overhead reducing their costs heck a tech company doesn't have to pay an electricity bill for a big fancy office in San Francisco or New York that's a big savings right so when you saw this epic profit being considered for a certain type of work and just um, kind of baseline wages, hopefully a livable wage, but in many circumstances, hardly livable wages for essential workers, it kind of begs the question of, is our safety net wired correctly? If there are people who are out of work and they don't have healthcare and healthcare is tied to just whether you have a job or not in this country, is that the right way we should do things? Or if you have, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I mean, these are all, these are great, Great, great points. But specifically, I find that the best way to address these things, right, is is to either like what you do at the ACLU, right? It's very advocacy based. What I do also very advocacy based organizing, running for can, you know, running candidates and especially when it comes to issues, Medicare for all. Uh, reproductive rights in this country, a Green New Deal, climate infrastructure, you know, COP26 just ended, I think, yesterday. I think they're connected to one central issue, which is voting rights, right? I think the premise of, of how we develop, whether it's incremental change or even radical change, has to stem from whether we as a people uh, being represented demand it, right? Because the decisions that dictate what issues we you know, fight for every single day yeah. are supported or neglected by our leadership. 
Right. I think, I think that's right. And I, I mean, one that is absolutely correct. And at a baseline consideration of why we would go into or why I wanted to go into the ACLU um, was because all those things that I mentioned I was working on doesn't matter if people can't show up or participate in their own faith or outcomes. And the reason that I was maybe over-indexing on this form of work and what essential workers were get, doing for our society, but maybe not getting in the form of adequate pay, of adequate worker power, or adequate safety net support, is that it showed us that the only way that we can change that is by getting Congress to pass some major pieces of legislation. Right. Certainly, the Trump administration pushed out aid. Earlier this year, one of his first acts, Biden pushed out aid. Um, uh, and the American Rescue Plan. And now he's working on yet another infrastructure package to expand the safety net. But if our voting rights are under attack, and that was the other feature of, how, you know, you asked me, how do I feel about 2020? While I was working on this issue or grappling with this issue of essential worker challenges, you realize that voting rights and the how to vote, voting by mail, whether you can vote legitimately or not, attacks on voting rights, voter suppression, voter ID laws, this debate got kicked up and spun, and, and frankly, there was, fear, there was a lot of fear-mongering from the last president about what voting ought to look like or not look like. And you had the rise of the occasion of the Secretary of States that gained a massive prominence around the country at a time where that office is not often looked to. And I think in 2020, for me, bearing witness to, there are all these challenges to work in this country. There are all these challenges to our safety net in this country, but at its baseline, if you can't participate, if you don't have adequate voice or your voice is suppressed, that's a big problem. And that's what moved me to the ACLU. And I, and I wanna get into voting rights. And I wanna say one thing, the secretaries of state that I mentioned, there's an incredible secretary of state named Jenna Griswold, uh, the state of California, uh, Colorado. Colorado, Colorado, one uh, of the best in the country. One of the best in the country, I would agree with that. And I think seeing the fact that offices like that elected officials like that needed to be out there, not just communicating clearly, how do you vote in a pandemic, but also needing to push back on misinformation coming out from the Oval Office, also needing to push back on clarifications about people within the state of Colorado in terms of how they were moving the ballots around and how you could participate. It demonstrates what we know and what this podcast is about, which is the innumerable, innumerable number of attacks on the ability to vote in this country right now. And that's something that the ACLU focuses on in a big way. And I wanna share some numbers with you. If that's numbers, okay. I like numbers. Like numbers, all right. So we have seen in the 2021 legislative session across the country, more than 400 anti-voter bills. Um, some of the most prominent are in Georgia, uh, or get the most news coverage, but that's in 48 different states. And right now we've seen the Biden administration try and ensure that federal agencies are actually proposing and implementing plans to provide robust and effective voter registration services. So just a, a couple of weeks ago, I think a month or two ago, there was an executive order uh, called the Promoting Voting Access uh, EO, executive order by Biden. And its goal was, and I'm, and I'm quoting from this here, is to promote and pro protect and promote the exercise of the right to vote, eliminate discrimination and other barriers to voting, and expand access to voter registration and accurate election information. So a very strong step to make sure that all federal agencies embrace the original intent of the National Voter Registration Act and that Congress has declared it the duty of the federal, state, and local governments to promote and exercise the right to vote. So while that's really important in general for the White House to take a stance on voting rights, 
The reason that this history is important when it comes to the National Voter Registration Act is that Congress passed the NVRA. This is a political podcast, so let's use acronyms since we love acronyms here. Um, Congress passed the NVRA in 1993 to address discriminatory discriminatory uh, role of voter registration played in our elections. You've covered this on this podcast. But in the last 25 years, even though it's helped address discrimination and closed gaps, it's all by requiring states to offer different registration opportunities throughout the arc of an election season mm-hmm. um, to make sure that DMVs and public assistance agencies play a role in this. Um, despite all of that, the rates of registrations among communities of color, of black and brown people and low income people, some of the same categories of workers that I was talking about that sacrificed so much last year, they're still disproportionately lower. You layer on top of that the 400 shitty bills across the country that are moving and it's preventing them from doing what you said, Kanal, which is exercising their fundamental ability to show up in this economy. And that fundamental ability to change how they should be protected as workers, as family members, as students, as teachers. And so I think that President Biden's executive order presents a great opportunity to achieve the goals, but it does not replace the federal legislation federal legislation, excuse me, that I know that this podcast talks so much about, which is to protect the right to vote. And and that is really, really troubling because there was a Supreme Court case um, called Shelby County v. Holder, which you're familiar with, which weakened the Voting Rights Act. And in 2013, which doesn't seem too long ago, and yet we're dealing with this. It spiraled since then. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, and then I think even... Was it this summer? The Supreme Court substantially uh, weakened another part of the VRA in a case called um, Bronvich versus the DNC, the Democratic Party, making yeah. it more difficult for voting rights advocates to challenge racial discriminatory voting laws in court. Because if you're redistricting places and gerrymandering, you can basically use the cover of um, political affiliation as a proxy for racial identification and crack and pack different types of communities to make it more politically viable for you when you draw district lines. So I'm, I'm combining a lot here, but but I wanted to make the point that right now more than ever, when I think about my path from public sector to private sector, that unless you remedy structural challenges to just participate in your neighborhood, participate in your economy, or participate in your democracy, then we've got a big darn problem on our hands. And that's why the ACLU has urged Congress to cement the legacy of the Voting Rights Act to plus up some of the dents that the Supreme Court have included mm-hmm. and, and protect the rights of all Americans by passing the John Lewis Voting Rights Act or Advancement Act. And in the meantime, amidst all those voting rights attacks happening, the administration's EO provides good opportunity for, for the federal government to respond, but that alone doesn't do it. And unless we actively move that bill and actively deal with these very thin majorities in the Senate and get past the sort of filibuster challenges that have prevented good voting rights legislation to pass, then we're only going to see this further degradation of voice, which is why conversations like you're having today are so damn important in raising the in level of debate on this topic in this country. Yeah, I mean, that pretty much covered it. I would The EO to me is more symbolic than anything else, right? It's an executive order. It doesn't really have the full might of the federal government. What I find, and this is actually great transition, you know, as the host, what I find the most beneficial to to addressing this issue is not only supporting the work of the ACLU, um, and I think just in a, a side note, the ACLU, need, ACLU needs to hire me so that I just walk into Congress, get it passed, walk out, end nice. of story. 
that I think I could do that. You know, I respect that you build a podcast in order to submit a job application. It's a very long-winded way of getting there, but that's True. good. That's good hustle. That's exactly. Good. Uh, but not only that, I find that the best way to address these issues, especially voting rights, is to become a candidate. Is to mm-hmm. run for office because as much as you know, folks like me, organizers, advocates, we try to influence and lobby. Um, you know, policies we want, you know, in the city council and our communities in a city like San Francisco, or even in Congress, we are not making those decisions. We don't have those choices. Uh, But if you are a candidate, if you are an elected official, you do. So I'm going to ask, do you have any aspirations to to, to fill that gap, right, to to run for office? Um, Yeah, I I definitely am considering it. I think it's important for all of us to consider what public service looks like in their community. But I think what what I want to underscore one point, uh, or maybe two points. The first is, at a minimum, you know, this is a podcast that has featured a lot of different guests of different profiles and different backgrounds. We also saw and we continue to bear witness, you know, certainly where I'm at in San Francisco, but also around the country, because of some xenophobia advanced by the last president about the origins of COVID and what that uh, these links might mean for the the AAPI diaspora in this country, the Asian American diaspora. um, We've seen a lot of hate crimes spike against the AAPI community in the last year. We've also seen a tremendous uh, growth of a participation of more and more South Asian and East Asian participants in the political process. Um, but we don't nearly have enough representation that really reflects the true character and face and profile of this country. And so while I'm not someone that really likes to traffic in an identity politics, I do think that the sense of empathy, the sense of understanding what it means to be a first generation Indian American in this country, or to to understand what it means to actively support small business corner stores like merchant corner stores or nail salons or groceries that are owned by people of East Asian descent in this country, that this sense of understanding an American experience and fighting for the policies and regulations and the voice of those policies and regulations, whether it's small business regulations or voting rights legislation, it requires a lived experience be motivated into Congress, into local office, into school boards, into parent-teacher associations, and even just doing what you're doing, community organizing around topics. So I think first and foremost, to answer your question, have I thought about it? Yeah, I've certainly, dead, I, in my opinion, I feel like I've given a lot of my life to community engagement with roles in the public sector, roles on behalf of you know the policy elements of the private sector, and now again at the ACLU. So I don't think like, I'm making news by saying I'm continuing to, to engage in that. But what I think is more important is exactly what you're doing and why I'm, I'm very impressed by folks like you, which is- Oh, stop it. You're too- no, you got you got to build you got to build a bench of next generation folks that represent some of our parents' experiences and you know future generations' experiences. That's number one. The number two thing that I'll say about public service and running is that there and this is this is a, a something that was impressed upon me from uh, President Obama in the early days that sometimes we think in order to get involved in our communities that you've got to have a podcast or you have to have a title next to your name or you have to have a certain amount of money. But really, I think what you got to have is a clipboard and a pen and you can start organizing your community on the issues that are near and dear to your heart. Um, and, and that's very important for our community to recognize also, because while running for something is, is meaningful and having a face like yours run for something or mine run for something or fill in the blank run for something, 
that makes a difference in what more and more people aspire towards and think is doable. While that is important, you can also do it in different ways. And I think that recognizing that balance between public service from inside a physical building versus all the other civil society groups, the organizers, the housing advocates, the tenants advocates, the workers' rights advocates, they're all part of the same ecosystem of service. Yeah. No, and service is a very broad term. And it's something to relate this back to, to voting is the number one, I think, currency we all have as citizens of this country is to vote, right? Yeah. It's, it's not a silver bullet. It won't solve all the problems, but it'll definitely start and maybe influence that line of service, right? You got a taste of what it feels like to work for, for a mayor and a congressman who's now a senator, and you wanted to pursue that. You took it to the White House, and then you came back and said, let me focus on how to help people from the other side, right? And now you do amazing work with the ACLU the same way I wanted to change my city council and, 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 and impact my district because I know it doesn't represent what I believe are community values, mm. right? I know I'm going to vote. I know you're going to vote. But the, the idea is to get everybody to vote. Because yeah. in any case, it, if, you're, if you're somebody who feels alienated or exhausted or fatigued or just ignorant, right? You, you don't want to touch politics. You don't have time for it. Just know to build those roads, to build those bridges, to build those light, you know, the light posts, uh, your, your community rec centers, your parks, um, or to pursue criminal justice reform and, and pass a social security, uh, a social safety net, we need to have elected leaders to do that. And that also- that, Yeah, I, I, I concur wholeheartedly. I think it's very well said. And I think, you know, for sometimes, on the one hand, that, that is a very important and obvious statement to encourage people to exercise their voice, right? But sometimes we don't even see turnout in certain elections because people assume certain outcomes will either be inevitable or that their voice won't make a difference, right? And I think that we, we have a responsibility in this conversation on this podcast to actually understand what it means to have the impact of a vote, right? Yeah. This past year, we saw a recall in our own state of California <laughs> where the options were between a governor that felt like we should have robust safety protocols around managing a global pandemic that has killed hundreds of thousands of people in this country, or a candidate or a lead candidate, there were several candidates gunning for, for the governor's office, but a lead candidate that rose up that rejected safety protocols, right? That's at stake when we vote. Or on a federal level, to your point, if voting rights are suppressed and we don't have the ability to feel safe and secure that as a brown person, I can go to a voting site and be treated fairly and not be carted out or suppressed in some other like nefarious tactic. That what, what's that consequence on the other side of that is right now the ability for families who have children to get a little extra support through the expansion of a child tax credit. That's a live debate going on in Congress. That's at stake if you don't vote and change the makeup of Congress. What's also at stake is if you're a, a, a young parent, or a, I'll put it this way, if you're a young mom who uh, is, is not ready to be a mom and wants to fam, plan for their family accordingly and get access to certain reproductive care or reproductive information, that is now being criminalized in different states around the country. And the ability to change that federally is actually blocked by the makeup of Congress right now. That's at stake when we vote. And so I think voting is important. And sometimes I'm always reminded of that incredible 
uh, call and response where Barack Obama was in a rally and someone was booing at something that he was saying and he quit back, don't boo, vote. And that is important as a value system we have to maintain in our society and that's being attacked, but we also need to contextualize it as to what is specifically going to happen if we don't vote or if we're apathetic to that vote, or if we think, eh, I'm voting in California, everyone's gonna go the same direction. Like we can change the debate here. Yeah, we can change the world here. Yeah. I can do, I don't know about you, but I can, you know, anyway, let's- uh, You let's got go. this, man. <laughs> can, I actually, no, no, no. can I actually ask you a question? You, 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 you are- ask me a question. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been talking a lot. So what what is it is important if for people that like traffic in this work day to day and you know my my team at the ACLU focuses on a certain form of of voice and participation from an economic justice and a gender justice perspective mm. uh, which involves you know trans justice rights, reproductive rights, workers rights. Uh but sometimes if you're not focused on civic participation every day because you're juggling a couple jobs or you're juggling college applications, it might be hard to see the significance or the severity of what's going on when it comes to voting in this country. What motivates you uh, to be so bullish and vocal on this issue? That's a great question. Thank you so much. And thank you for allowing me to come on this podcast. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I spent the last couple of years. So, right. I did all that. This is the best way I know how to explain it. In school, we're, we're motivated to ask questions, be intellectually curious, right? That's, that's kind of what we strive for in, in any subject, right? Yeah. So I was always for social science, et cetera. So I, I did well in those areas. I understood, I asked questions and that, that conjured spirited debate, right? What does, you know, the year 2016 prior to the election, that, that's what we were doing. We were all talking, I was doing speech and debate and MUN, I was learning all these great things. Um, and then the election happens, right? I, I see Donald Trump and the end of, of the Obama administration. I'm like, what the F? <laughs> um, you know, and I was way too young to have been supportive of, of Obama. You know, he, I, I, like his first campaign, I was four. Like, there was no way I knew what was going on until that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I told myself, how beyond just talking about it, right? The conversations you, you have with your professor or your peers, and in those in those debates, you find yourself asking, "We have great solutions. We have great impeccable ideas. Why aren't we doing anything about it?" So that's when I I switched. You know, I went into overdrive, and I was like, "I want to get out there and try to see if it can work." Mm. I joined campaigns. I joined the Bernie Sanders race. Um, you know, and, and that was a great federal race, got me into context of just brute organizing, you know, going door to door, phone banking, just, just getting into the very basics of what I believe campaigning is. Nice. Um, and then I said, well, let's look at locally, right? Locally is where I feel you can, you can touch, you can make positive change. You can just feel it. Yeah. So, so, you know, city council, I started observing, I started attending city council meetings, giving my three minute public comment, uh, and I was like, we have to change the leadership here. It, it doesn't reflect the values I and what people around me believed in. So we organized for a mayor. We did the same thing for our supervisor we, uh, who, was, who was retiring. So, so we ran a candidate. Uh, I, I continue to do that in a DA's race today. Um, and, and it just follows. I did that for Jenny, who ran for state assembly a couple districts over. Um, so it, it's honestly, I, I like to find people like yourself 
who do amazing work, who need to be amplified to be given that platform. And I like to support them because I know I can't even vote yet. I'm pre-registered, but I can't vote. But it, right. it's, something, it's something I can do to see, to have at least a chance to, to make that change, to make that difference. Uh, so yeah, and it's fun. I get to meet great people, honestly. I, I do it because there's so many fantastic people, so many great backstories, so many great life stories. Yeah, that I get to learn from and and ultimately apply to myself. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing that. And it, yeah, it was it was lost on me for a second, but it's actually very even more powerful that if you're not at voting age yet, and yet you're from campaign experience and just community experience, you see the importance of just turning out people so that way they can pull a lever and express their perspective in their way. All it's, my aunties on the phone, bro. Yeah, absolutely. Get all the uncles, get all the aunties to yeah. clarify their position. I did want to share, well, I'm, I'm super proud to see the kind of work that you're doing, despite everything that you got on your plate, navigating college applications and just life in high school. Um, when, when, when you do turn 18 and when you do participate in your first election, I hope that you'll, you'll take photos and, and give us a, <laughs> a love of what that experience looks like for you. Yeah, it'll, it'll be fun. Next midterms, I'm hoping to, to vote for a couple of my candidates. Um, but no, it's it's been an amazing ride and it'll continue, you know. Uh, hashtag ACL, you should hire me. Uh, <laughs> but in any case, no, uh, this has been great. I, did you want to add something? Is there anything you'd like to add? No, no, I mean, I not a ton. I just, you know, thanks for hosting these conversations and for anyone that is uh, actually listened to me ramble and is this far into this episode of the podcast, you should definitely check out his other episodes. They're, they're phenomenal. I'll end by saying this. It, it, it's something that as a South Asian um, son of Indian immigrants, we just celebrated Diwali where we are celebrating Diwali this month. And I was actually talking to my parents about the origin of my last name. And Vikram Iyer uh, is kind of a common name in India, but it actually reflects a categorization that India embraced for centuries, which is this kind of tiered system, this caste system. And it is something that um, actually created uh, barriers of access and barriers of voice, depending on the type of job or the socioeconomic status that you were at. And it's interesting because in, in unpacking with them re this recently, I discovered that like that last name of Iyer actually like denoted a certain type of work and a certain type of uh, respect for a period of time in India. And then it was actually seen as a discriminatory uh, phrase or affiliation because like powers had changed and other sides were trying to like suppress a certain voice and elevate another voice, something like we're seeing on display in this country right now. And I don't think people often look to India or my origin story as like a place of like ruthless um, disenfranchisement of voice. But in effect, certain jobs for my parents or people that had a certain last name at a certain moments in time in India were actually hard to come by. Education and access to classrooms were hard to come by. So they come to America, try and find new opportunities here. And yet we are seeing whether you're Indian, whether you are black, whether you're Latino, whether you are Chinese, whether you're Korean, whether you are white, whether you are any number of colors under the rainbow, that there are all too often in our city politics or our state politics or federal politics, these two versions of the world. Sometimes it works out for some people based off of their background, their access to opportunity, their ability to cast a vote. And sometimes there are not opportunities for those people. And that two tiering, you know, that is 
in fact, emboldened and emblazoned in my last name for its origin story of what brought my parents here, that tiering can only be solved of giving everyone equitable opportunity to voice and, and chance in this country by going and changing the makeup of our elected representatives. And that is voting. And, and I thought that in light of Diwali, especially as a, a festival that honors light and service and coming together and, and knowing that we're better off together than apart, that that was something I wanted to share here because it's kind of core to our story. But when people think of Indian Americans, they think of like this bigotry of certain expectations. We're doctors, we're lawyers, we're, we're uh, engineers. We're engineers. <laughs> Yeah, we have a story too that's rooted in the heart of your podcast, which is that voice exists sometimes for some of us, and then it's taken away, and we have to reclaim it, and and we only do that by safeguarding what what this podcast is dedicated to. So I appreciate the space to share all of this. No, of course, and then it's it's been phenomenal hosting you on the show. Uh, you know, I think the perspective is there, the insight is there, the work I think shines for itself. So thank you for all that you do. Uh, you so luck, luck in your future endeavors uh and and uh, you know if you ever run for office you, anytime you want to come back on you're like hey i have a job for you 100 percent uh but no uh, i appreciate I that forward, i look forward to your next chapter proud of what you're doing here man good talking with you yeah peace